It was supposed to be one of those standard ask Pastor Chris anything you want Sunday school classes. Usually this happens in one of the children's Sunday school classes and it's usually reserved to hit me with all of those questions that when the children asked the teacher at some point during the year, the teacher replied, I think that's a good question for Pastor Chris. And that's code for, I'm not touching that hot potato. Let Pastor Chris get burned. But this time we got through the usual biblical and church-related questions that they had accumulated. And uh, the children were invited then by the teachers to just ask me anything they wanted. And one uh, little girl asked, What do you do when it's not Sunday? And I went through a brief list, which seemed to surprise the little girl. When I finished, she was not willing to let go of her initial thought. She said, But I thought you just worked on Sunday. To which I wanted to reply, you know, there was a time in our nation's life and in the life of the church when children were supposed to be seen and not heard. Maybe we should get back to those good old days. It put me in mind of when I was a student pastor in a small rural congregation in Waverly, Tennessee, about an hour to the west of us. And uh, I lived there in the summers in a little mobile home right behind the church and every week during the summer, uh, Ed would come by in his work truck. And he was coming to spend a few hours at the church uh, repairing things and sprucing up around the facility. He was the church's volunteer handyman. And he uh, asked when he would come by and expected that uh, I would join him in what he described to me more than once as real work. And I did. I joined him for a couple of weeks, yielding my vast knowledge of construction and woodworking and small engine repair and landscape engineering. Upon getting a close-up view of my skills, Ed stopped coming by the trailer to ask me to do that real work. There's something about work that really gets to us gets under our skin or gets us motivated. Work is, after all, a social contract, right? Work is a social contract. All of us have needs, many and varied needs, which can only be met by the work of others. Work binds us together in a web of interdependence, which is why we all care about it. We care about when people are not able to find work and they remain unemployed. We, we care about who is working and who is not working. We, we care about those who don't appear to want to do any kind of work. Work is important. It's a, it's a social contract. We, it's a way of saying we need each other. We need each other's gifts and skills. We need each other's labor of one sort or another. The church, ancient and modern, is not immune to this social contract. In most any church, large or small, there's quite a bit of work to be done. 
And those called to do that work often work alongside whatever staff may exist. Those called to do that work are the people of the church. All the people of the church. All people are called to the work of ministry. And in the church, as in the world, if there are people who do not sign on to this contract or this covenant, we might say, in the church, then the whole community suffers. This is what appears to be happening in the church at Thessalonica. Paul writes, as you know, two letters to this church, two very short letters. And in both of those letters, we read that there are people in the church who obviously do not understand what it means to live in community, to be part of that interdependent web. In this instance, in this part of this letter, it appears that some are refusing to do the work that contributes to the life of the community and uh, the society. And Paul, uh, sometimes is not, um, sometimes Paul just doesn't have a filter and he just says things rather directly. And um, to them, Paul notes that there are some among you who are living in idleness, as he puts it. It could be that these are some of the same people who believed that the Lord had already come, had already returned, or those who thought the Lord's coming again was imminent. And so why work? if the end of days is upon us. We know that those beliefs were prevalent in the Thessalonica church. To them, Paul's message is clear. Imitate us. Follow our example. When Paul and his co-workers were there in Thessalonica, even though they were the leaders of the church, they worked. Even though, he points out to them, they did not have to work, but they did work in order to give them an example. Paul even reminds them of something that he said when he was with them face to face, a reminder that this is obviously a prevalent issue in the church. He says, remember when we told you, commanded you, those who will not work should not eat. That seems rather harsh. But while it seems rather harsh, we should remember how centered the early church was on table fellowship, the common meal that served as the context for the Lord's Supper. Paul may be saying that because they refuse to work, they have shown that they do not value this fellowship, this community, and are in effect not a part of the community and not to be welcomed at the table. Again, it seems rather harsh to me, but also presented me with an idea. And we have the Thanksgiving meal coming up, Wednesday Night Live, on Wednesday. So I have, a, I have a stewardship idea. And so when you come in on Wednesday night and you smell the turkey and the dressing and you see the array of pumpkin pies and you hear the sounds of the community gathering, we're first going to take you off to a little booth where we can do a quick inventory so make sure you've been working and giving, and if not, no food for you. Does that sound like a good idea to you? It's biblical. Maybe not. Paul is not telling the community, I don't believe, 
If he was, it was entirely inconsistent with his other writings. He's not telling the community to withhold food from anyone. Rather, he's inviting those who are refusing to work to consider what it means to be part of a community, and especially a community of faith. He uses rather strong and unfiltered language, which I think is meant to wake up those in the church who, for whatever reason, have become passive followers. He, in essence, says the table is set. Consider what it means to sit at this table to be part of this fellowship. There's another aspect of the disruptiveness of the people in the church that you can see in this text only by paying attention to the Greek, which is the language that the New Testament was written in. It's that phrase, living in idleness. It's a word in Greek that's only used twice in the New Testament, both right here in this reading we did today. Both verses 6 and 11 use a Greek word that comes from an adverb translated as disorderly or disruptive. Some Bibles translate this text as idle and disruptive. The problem is not that they're just lazy or won't work, but that they actively work trouble in the church as busybodies or gossips. It reminds me of an adage that maybe you've heard. I always heard it from my grandfather when it was time for me to go out and mow the grass or do one of the various odd jobs he had set up for me to do. Idle hands are the devil's workshop. Have you ever heard that? Idle hands are the devil's workshop. Paul seems to see a connection between this kind of behavior of the idle ones in the community and their inherent laziness. He in essence is saying get up and do something other than cause trouble. Up until this point, to be honest, it feels like we've been reading some session minutes. The board of elders at the church at Thessalonica dealing with run-of-the-mill church problems and a former pastor writing to tell them to shape up, to remember his example, or to lose out on the table fellowship of the community. It does all sound rather harsh. But Paul is too good a pastor to leave it there. He believes too much in God's grace and God's coming realm, God's kingdom, which the church reflects in the world, to leave it there. You can almost sense him looking into the eyes of these troublesome church members at Thessalonica, their lazy eyes, their apathetic eyes, And taking a breath, he says, right at the end of the reading, work quietly and earn your own living. That's all. Work quietly and earn your own living. And then he seems to look up. Beyond the confines of that church and that time and place, to look up and even catch our eyes. And says, brothers and sisters, do not be weary in doing what is right. Do not be weary in doing what is right. You hear about it all the time. 
compassion fatigue, they call it. Donor fatigue, they call it. There's so much asked of us that we often become numb to the array of needs around us. I approach someone to ask them to consider a commitment of one sort or another in the church, and they say, Pastor, I'm old. I've done my time. I just want to enjoy a life free of commitments. I've done my time like a church work is a prison term, you know. But I get it. I'm right there with them much of the time. I will admit, I sometimes dig out the calendar to see where my retirement date might possibly fall. So I can be commitment-free. Although I've talked to many of you retired folks, it doesn't seem to always work out that way. But Paul stands here today to invite us to another response, another way to recognize that as long as we breathe, we are recipients of God's never-ending grace that calls forth our faithful response and so Paul's word is for all of us who can become weary let us not be weary in doing what is right I was reading an article in the Atlantic recently about Camp Moriah you remember this camp on the island of Lesbos in Greece it's a place where our church took two different trips to work with relief agencies there. You will remember that time. That's a place where thousands of migrants are trying to get into Europe every day, every year. The article noted that Moriah was built to hold 3,000 people, but is now home to 13,000 people, including an estimated 1,000 unaccompanied minors. Just imagine that. They are mostly stuck there in a permanent limbo. As the article went on to describe the increasingly horrendous situation there at Moriah, I admit I began to grow weary. We were there twice, after all. We witnessed the real hopefulness in the people's eyes, a real sense of excitement that they were now in Europe, they were free, they were safe. And now it all seems for naught. But I'm glad that my weary hands held on to the magazine and read to the end where the writer, the author writes, a small and jolly group of volunteers, a small and jolly group of volunteers from Ireland, England, Iceland, Australia, the United States, Germany, and France rushed to the beaches to deliver blankets and water and food and first aid. I remember that was us a few years ago. We were part of that jolly small group of volunteers. The author goes on to say they are kind and young and engaged. And I would add they are still there. After all of this time, when they could have thrown up their hands long ago, they are there, not becoming weary of doing what is right in one of the borderlands of our world. And then I think a little closer to home about grace works. 
that provides year after year after year an increasing number of fuel bags for children, for students in Franklin and Williamson County who otherwise might go hungry over a weekend at home. Here, in the wealthiest county in the state of Tennessee, here, in one of the wealthiest counties in the entire region, kids go hungry, they are food insecure, it would be easy to become weary of such a reality. But Grace Works does not grow weary in doing what is right. And this congregation has and is having such a significant impact in the lives of so many people inside and outside the church in worship and study and service because there are just so very many of you who refuse to grow weary in doing what is right, confirmation, room in the end, Sunday school, choir, week after week. A quick glance at our newsletter reveals a congregation far from growing weary of doing what is right. All of us will go through seasons, however, when we do grow weary. And when we do, Paul invites us to take a step back to reflect again on what God, who neither slumbers nor sleeps, who does not grow weary, is bringing to birth in the world. Then, even if our hands grow weary, let us join them together with our siblings in community and supporting one another together, not be weary in doing what is right. A couple of years ago, I was staying the night with Room in the Inn. And as I went about doing some of the preparation and cleanup that so many of you are familiar with in the kitchen, one of the guests came in and asked if he could help. And I said what I always say, no, you are our guest. I've got it. Just go relax. And then I started back to my work, and I caught out of the corner of my eye, I caught him cleaning off the countertop, with a, with a wet rag. And when I approached him to say again to him, you don't need to do that, he, he looked at me and said, I always want to do my part. You all have shown such kindness. My help is my thank you. My help is my thank you. My work is my thank you. He spoke gospel right there in FPC's kitchen, dish rag in his hand. My help is my thank you. My work is my thank you. Our lives are our thank you. All we do, we do in response in thanksgiving. In this response is the hope of the world to embrace the reign of God. And so church, let us not grow weary in doing what is right, in offering our thank you, that the world may know the God we worship and serve. May it be so. Amen.